The night may be long and the dark may be deep, but the answers are there to be found. Whether it's the normal, the abnormal, or the paranormal, you're in the right place. Let's go beyond reality. Normally we're talking about things like ghosts, UFOs, aliens, Bigfoots. <laughs> Bigfoots. <laughs> I did say Bigfoots. Um, cryptids. We're talking about things that are a little bit harder to put your finger on when it comes to, in some cases, proof. In some cases, even understanding what we're talking about. That's what makes it a lot of fun. But tonight we're going to be talking about something a little more serious and a little more, um, I guess, current event oriented. Uh, Our guest tonight will be William Craig Reed. He is a geopolitical expert. And about 20 years ago, there was a submarine accident. Uh, The submarine was a Russian submarine called the Kursk. And it nearly brought us to the brink of war. And it has lasting uh, consequences. And we're going to talk about that with with, uh, William Craig Reed tonight. How this incident affected us. What the U.S. government was doing. What the Russian government was doing. Were they doing things that we weren't told of? There's a whole bunch of angles to this. Plus, we're going to talk about just the general state of the world uh, geopolitic as it stands right now in the midst of the coronavirus. So this is a bit of a departure for us, but it's going to be very, very interesting. And I'm excited to have this this discussion with um, with Bill tonight. So I'm looking forward to this. I'm also going to mention that uh, the Booze, Brews, and Bros program that we have scheduled tomorrow night, we are going to start shifting our focus for maybe not necessarily the Friday night version, but we're going to start looking at doing a Saturday night program as well. And we're going to be shifting that to our Twitch channel, or I should say my Twitch channel. Uh, so if you are familiar with the Twitch platform, it's uh, it's a pretty interesting way, and it's a, it's, a, it's a very interactive way. And when we play games and do things like that, the Twitch channel has some advantages that we can't do on YouTube. We'll continue to do everything on YouTube um, for those of you who prefer, prefer that platform. But we are going to include Twitch in our broadcasts, and in fact, we're doing that right now with this broadcast and i'm looking forward to trying out some of the features that twitch has so i think this saturday night we're going to do something special on twitch only just to give it a test run so if you haven't become familiar with the twitch platform download the app onto your phone set up an account whatever you need to do and uh, start becoming familiar with it because it's kind of cool they've got some cool things going on there um so and uh, having said that of course uh, continue to subscribe to our youtube channel that channel is really the hub of our online community, and you can find it by going to YouTube and searching for JV Johnson. Very simple. Subscribe, hit the notification icon so you're told when we go live or when we upload bonus content. There's about 500, maybe even 600 back episodes there for your enjoyment, and uh, we want you to be part of that community. And then a final note, find us on Facebook. Follow us there because that's where we do most of our announcements and uh, let you know where we're going to be appearing, all those kinds of things. Please support the program. Go to patreon.com slash Johaw. That's J-O-H-A-W. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. I'm your host, J.V. Johnson. Thank you for being here tonight. We're going to have a very interesting conversation. As I said, it's a bit of a departure from our normal topics, and it's actually far more consequential in many ways. 
Our guest tonight, William Craig Reed, is an author of several award-winning nonfiction books. He's served as a U.S. Navy diver, a submariner, a spec ops photographer, and he's earned commendations for completing secret missions during the Cold War. He's also a geopolitical and military expert with an MBA in marketing. Bill, welcome to Beyond Reality. It's great to have you here. Great to be here. Thanks. So, first of all, thank you for your service. Um, you know, I, I, I find that uh, we as a society often don't take enough time to thank people who volunteer to go into military service. And uh, most people that do that do it so modestly and almost quietly protecting not just the United States, but in many cases, many parts of the world. So thank you for doing that. Well, thank you. I, I want to thank those on the front lines right now that are fighting the battle of many lives and putting their lives at risk. So I'm going to thank all of those, the uh, first responders and those in the medical industry. Uh, they're, they're out there putting their lives on the line right now. So thanks to them. Tell us a little bit about your military service. How long were you in? Where'd you serve? That kind of thing. Uh, I was in the Navy. And as you mentioned, uh, submariner and also Navy diver. I was in for six years and almost stayed in, but uh, I got recruited by uh, a civilian organization. And I, I have to say that I was uh, really thrilled with a lot of the things that we did. I didn't expect to do the things that we did, espionage operations and so on, and uh, some harrowing missions. wrote about those in my upcoming book, Spies of the Deep, including actually running into uh, having a collision with a Russian submarine, uh, almost didn't come back alive, but oh, wow. um, glad to say that we did. And so I'm here to uh, talk about it today. Wow. Um, I noted that you were a submarine diver. What exactly is that? Well, there's uh, a lot of different um, disciplines. And back in those days, <laughs> we marched five miles up here uphill in the snow. Um, we had a lot of different disciplines, UDTs, SEALs, and, of course, various different Navy diver operations. And for submarine divers, a lot of people don't understand what that means, but when you are out on an operation, let's say you are in uh, certain territorial waters and something goes wrong with the submarine, it could be something to do with a sonar system or maybe noise that's being made, uh, these divers have to lock out of an escape trunk, go outside, and fix it. And this can often be in hostile waters, uh, can be quite dangerous, and so we're highly trained. And I have to say that uh, the Navy did a great job of getting us ready for those kinds of missions. So we we're all kind of used to seeing, uh, you know, these guys, these astronauts, and this is no small feat, doing spacewalks to go outside and repair the space station or in the old days, I guess, the space shuttle. That's kind of what you were doing, but underwater. Yes, in a certain way. Now, uh, we also have what's called deep saturation divers. They use helium oxygen. And I talk about this because it plays a very important role, not only during the Cold War, but also what happened uh, during August of 2000 when the curse went down. And during the Cold War, what I write about is these missions where we were wiretapping Russian communication cables. And this was at 700 or even 1,000 feet deep. Wow. They didn't know about it, of course and top-secret missions using submarines to lock divers out of these uh, chambers and actually wrap these cables with uh, devices to pull the communications off. Very dangerous missions. Had to be approved by the president. They were so dangerous. Uh, a lot of uh, subs almost didn't make it back. 
Wow. And these are things that, you know, obviously most people don't even know were occurring. Uh, I'm sure that's just probably the tip of the iceberg, so to speak, and the number of things that we were doing during the Cold War and since the Cold War uh, related to um, trying to keep tabs on our what we would consider to be our adversaries. Yes, without question. And even today, this is actually quite concerning because what I also talk about in the book is we later trained the Russian divers. They had lost the ability to do this, and we trained them so that they could do the salvage operation on the Russian submarine Kursk after it went down. And now, years later, having been trained by our teams, they can now threaten our communication cables, <laughs> the ones that wow. run between New York, for, for example, to the uh, European countries. If they were to tap those, or even worse, cut them, then we could see the economic despair we're seeing today times a factor of 10. Wow. These are things we take for granted. Of course, you're referring to um, your book, or at least the story told in your book, Spies of the Deep, and we're going to get into that in just a little bit. I want to ask you a little bit about your time on a submarine, because... I don't think people fully appreciate what the experience is when you are in a basically a metal tube underwater for months at a time, right? I mean, it can be it can be extended periods. Yes, that's correct. And uh, <laughs> hopefully you like the folks you're with, because otherwise it could be far worse than the lockdown that we're currently in. Um, and so uh, I actually am kind of used to being uh, in a lockdown situation, but sometimes we were underwater for more than 90 days. Wow. And you run out of anything fresh. There's no fresh fruit or vegetables, anything of that nature. Uh, but also it can become quite boring at some times, but uh, there are those times when you get into certain situations, as I mentioned before, and it can be quite dangerous and quite terrifying as well. But... Uh, we are trained to do that, and I, I have to take my hat off to those who are still doing it today. They are very difficult missions to accomplish. And uh, those who are qualified in submarines, we spend six months to a year learning every valve, every switch, every single system in the boat, because you never know if you're going to be standing somewhere and there happens to be a disastrous situation. You have to know exactly what to do. You earn a set of dolphins. These are pins that you uh, pin that you put on your chest, and we are very proud when we actually earn that designation. Well, tell us about what a modern submarine is like. I mean, you know, we, mo- most of the, I guess, m- pop culture exposure we've had to submarine stories. A lot of it's World War II. These these uh, machines, if you will, have come a long way since then. And what what are they capable of? And what is um, what are the conditions on a sub, a modern sub, a modern U.S. sub? Absolutely. Well, if you've seen Star Trek, a lot of the <laughs> control rooms today uh, aren't too much different. We've gone away from what used to be the old uh, upscope, downscope periscopes, and we now use uh, photonic masks, if you will. They actually beam the pictures down to... Um, monitors in the submarine, and we have very sophisticated modern systems that can hear a pin drop literally in the ocean many, many miles away, and very sophisticated capabilities to understand what we're listening to and what we're seeing and recording and so on. Uh, Very modern capabilities that um, we can't even talk about today. But 
Uh, I do have to say that uh, the conditions are still cramped. It's still very tight, and you do have to get along with the folks that you're there with because it's a very small, cramped environment. If you have claustrophobia, probably not a good place for you. Explain to me the importance of the submarine in a in a mil- modern military. How important of a weapon is the submarine? It's actually quite critical to our defense. I think a lot of people forget how important it is. We see the aircraft carriers. We hear about the uh, Theodore Roosevelt, for example, in the news today. And while all these modern warships are very important, uh, the modern submarine plays an extremely important role in today's defense because it's still hard to find them. You have a huge ocean out there, and especially now with what's happening in the Arctic. We're heating up in the Arctic, and it is melting the ice. And so we have a sea route, the northern sea route, going past the European countries, Norway and Russia, all the way past Alaska. Russia has locked that up. They have six modern bases, and they're now patrolling it with a lot of modern submarines. And we have difficulty. We've only got three submarines that can crack through really thick ice. The others can crack through some thin ice. But we're also scaling back on our operations up there. And we're basically in a gunfight with a knife. Uh, It's really very concerning to most that, that understand this situation. I was listening to a discussion that you had a few years ago um, in talking about our capabilities, and I think the the phrase you used is we're we're becoming a bit rusty. Has anything changed in in the three years since that discussion you had? No, actually, unfortunately, what happened after the Cold War is back again when I was in, we were doing maybe 85, 90 percent of our missions were what we called Holy Stone. These were espionage missions where we would get in very close to a foreign submarine, trail them sometimes within a few hundred yards. A very dangerous mission. We were highly trained to do that. After the Cold War, most missions changed to drug interdiction or other things. We lost our skill set to do that. We still had shore-based trainers, not the same thing. And so that's what a lot of experts believe may have caused some incidents uh, collisions and so forth, perhaps even with the Russian submarine Kursk. But even today, we're not doing as many of those types of missions. We're not as honed and trained. We don't have as many submarines or submariners. Uh, so our skill set's not what it was in the Cold War, and this could be quite concerning if we get into a heated battle. We, um, you know, we hear about military spending increasing over the past few years. Uh, first of all, is that a reality? And secondly, is that just a hardware buildup? Maybe, and you're talking about a, a training uh, deficiency, or what's the status there? Well, we are still spending quite a lot in the military. And oftentimes what does happen, unfortunately, is we have special interests, certain states or certain industries who uh, twist an arm here or there, and they wind up with some funding and perhaps um Wind up, we wind up with some military hardware uh, that's not as important or needed, but it does uh, fuel uh, some industries, etc. So it's a difficult challenge. Oh, mm-hmm. Whereas, um, in many cases, that's taken away from some of the frontline areas, such as submarines, which are really critical to our, our current security. You mentioned the Roosevelt, the aircraft carrier, and I just read that there's a second aircraft carrier that's now starting to have some issues with this coronavirus. Can you just give me an opinion as I cannot imagine uh, being on a a warship 
um, whether you're in port or not. But in, as, the, as you described, very cramped quarters and now having a biological enemy that you have to deal with. It's a really tough situation, and I liken this to um, in, in a wartime stance. You know, during the Battle of Midway, we had a couple of carriers, one in particular, uh, that got really damaged in the Yorktown battle in New Yorktown, yeah. and um, unfortunately, we still had to put that to sea, and you know, very risky. And that's the situation here. So it's a tough call. When we have a situation like this, what do you do? Do you go public with it? Do you not? Uh, how do you handle that situation? How do you still maintain a security posture? Because if you take an, a, a carrier out of action, yeah. our so-called possible enemies uh, know that's the case, and that could compromise our sea lanes. And our sea lanes are critical. You know, 90% of what we get, what we buy at Costco, et cetera, comes to us via sea lanes, so if they get compromised, uh, finding toilet paper could become a lot more difficult. <laughs> you, uh, what do you see uh, in your scanning of the globe right now in a geopolitical sense? Does this virus and what we're experiencing right now, and obviously we will come out of it at some point, but does it change geopolitics at all? Does it change military strategy at all? No question about it. We have to look at a couple of things. One, you know, was this a bioweapon? So that's the first question. Yeah, exactly. Important and we, question. And we do know that uh, the so-called Ground Zero was a, a wet market, if you will, right around the corner from the Wuhan bioweapons testing facility. Now, they claim it was only defensive. Who knows? But we do know that perhaps it was monkeys, maybe rats that were pilfered from that facility and then sold at that market that caused this. So terrorists have to be look at this and saying, okay, if it's that easy, yeah, uh, what can I do? And that is a huge potential problem for terrorist attacks. And then we have our adversaries who look at that and say, oh, it's that easy to cripple the U.S. economy. What else can we do that might cause that? So these are things that um, have educated uh, our potential enemies into acts that may come into play years later. Well, I mean, I hadn't even considered the terrorist component of this, but yeah, this 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 is a lesson uh, that they're probably watching very very closely, and that is scary in itself. But the the China component is an interesting one too, because if you had to write a book, and you're an author, and you write about this stuff, if you had to write a a, a thriller about a, a, a a foreign adversary to the United States finding a basically a covert way to take us out of action economically and in some cases militarily, boy, you couldn't write a better story than what we're watching unfold right now. I certainly couldn't. And I actually did write about that years ago uh, in a novel with a uh, situation similar to that. It was called The Eagle and the Snake, and it was about the Russian vector bioweapons program. They hid it from us. For two decades, we had no clue. Wow. Across all of Siberia, billions of dollars, they were creating a combination of Marburg Ebola and smallpox. We couldn't detect it, couldn't cure it. They were putting it into warheads pointed at us. And so that scenario created a nightmare, especially after Soviet Russia dissolved. And now you have all these vector scientists that could be picked up by terrorist countries. Uh, really, really bad situation. You um, 
obviously spent some time in the Navy. We talked about that. And, and you're now considered a geopolitical expert. Was your interest in geopolitics and military uh, study, did that precede your time in the Navy? Or did the Navy, be, while you served in the Navy, did you develop that interest? I was interested before, but I really became interested during because as part of what I did, I had to do a lot of study in relation to what various countries were doing, their weaponry, and so on. And that raised my interest in terms of what these countries were doing, what they were building, and why, and even more about the countries themselves and a bit about the geopolitical stance and so on. And that carried forward uh, many, many years later uh, on the submarine that I mentioned where we did collide with a, a Soviet submarine I was serving with a lieutenant who later became the admiral in charge of all NATO submarine operations. And so those individuals, people like that, I stayed in contact with, and it just kept me, if you will, tied to this geopolitical and the military scenarios and and the different informational situations. So your your service uh, helped basically hone your curiosity and, and maybe fuel it a little bit. Uh, and then after you left the service and, and spent some time in the private sector, you started to write about this stuff. How, how important was your time in the service and your, your experience there uh, to your writing? How important was that? I was quite critical, actually, because it not only spurred my interest, but allowed me to, again, harner some contacts, and find out uh, behind-the-scenes information that I might not have in other situations. And I just became quite interested in it. And unfortunately, was not able to write about it from a nonfiction perspective until a few decades after, uh, due to gag orders. Uh, But uh, finally was able to come out with uh, some information and I talked to some individuals who felt that they didn't want to see some of this history lost to history. And so that really spurred me, even though it was difficult. You know, we're called the silent service for a reason, and I struggled with that. But I decided to take very, very careful precautions and run it past some top people in the know who coached me on what I could and could not say uh, that allowed me to write about this without compromising security. Bill, let's talk about the new book, Spies of the Deep. What's this all about? Well, actually, a little over 20 years ago, in August of 1999, Putin was running for president, and he only had 2% of the vote. That month, a Russian submarine called the Kursk went on a top-secret mission. Now, we've heard about the Theodore Roosevelt. Well, that was actually an aircraft carrier in the news back then because the Kursk snuck in very close to the Theodore Roosevelt got a firing solution on that aircraft carrier, and they didn't know it. It was a huge hit to the U.S. Navy. They came back to all kinds of fanfare, and Putin then used that mission success to campaign how he was going to rebuild the Russian military, especially the Navy. Putin's father was a submariner, so he understood the submarine importance. That helped propel him to 53% of the vote in March of 2000, a little over 20 years ago, and not even a week later, he arrested a retired Navy captain who was spying in Russia, trying to get plans for a top-secret rocket torpedo. And that's where this story becomes extremely interesting and what is being revealed in this book that no one knows about. 
How long has have you known about what was really going on here that that you ultimately wrote the book about? Um, and how long has it been kept secret? Is it still essentially uh, is it classified information? I don't know how these things get classified. Some of this is, and um, uh, I've written around that because yeah. um, there are now. Uh, those who've come forward to tell the truth about what really happened. And I had heard about this through some contacts years ago. I finally was able to get some of the submariners who were aboard two submarines, the Memphis and the Toledo. They were very nearby the Kursk when it down. And that's what really opened my eyes to what happened. We were given lots of, if you will, lies, not only from the Russian military, but also from the U.S., that the Kursk incident, and this again happened in August of 2000, and we were told that an antiquated torpedo was being tested, and it blew up the front end of the Kursk and caused it to go down. That's not true. We now know it was a, a rocket torpedo called Shkabal. could go about 200 knots underwater. We were desperate to get information on this. And as I mentioned, this spy, Edmund Pope, he was trying to get this information from Russia. We were trying to buy some of these from one of the Russian factories. And Putin found out about it, shut it down. He had Pope arrested. And so we did not get that information. So we had to send two submarines into harm's way to do what I mentioned earlier, Holy Stone missions, mm-hmm. to try and, if you will, spy on the Kursk to find out what happened. And unfortunately, uh, that went awry. And it looks like there may have been, if not a scrape, a potential scrape that could have caused this rocket torpedo to get lodged in the tube of the Kursk and then blow up. And that's what caused it to go down. When you say scrape, what do you mean? Well, we had a lot of scrapes and incidents. I mentioned one when I was in where we actually smashed into. We we came up underneath. Yeah, there was actually contact, right? You actually had contact. We, we had a lot of contact. Smashed our sail. We had flooding. Uh, we were chased for three days. They torpedoed us and depth charged us. We oh, were wow. a mile off the coast, so they had every right to. And that's in the book as well. Uh, but this was not nearly that bad, uh, but it looks like it may have been a, if, if a, not a minor scrape, but maybe a very close call. And the curse swerved to miss. Uh, this collision, and that caused perhaps this torpedo to get lodged in the tube. Uh, this is coming from a number of experts that I talked with. And then the rocket torpedo lit off, and they weren't able to eject it from the tube. And that caused the other torpedoes in the torpedo room to heat up and explode, and it blew up the entire front end of the submarine. Wow. So this incident, I mean, accidents happen, obviously, and and accidents in the course of espionage and other, uh, I don't know what we would call them, spe- special operations, I guess, happen. They don't always bring us to uh, close to war, but this had some effect that way, didn't it? It certainly did, uh, because there were so many in Putin's military and also his government circles who were looking at the evidence, and they were convinced that there was a collision or near collision, and they wanted retaliation. And so Putin had to muzzle them. He did eventually meet with Bill Clinton. This was in a month later in September 2000 in New York. And this was one of the things they discussed, and experts believe that perhaps a deal was cut uh, where this truth or all these truths were buried 
to prevent any further escalation, perhaps even up to a nuclear war. Wow. It's it's scary to think we're that close at all times to, uh, you know, a push of a button away from what would be not just devastating, it would be apocalyptic. Yes, without question. And uh, we've avoided a lot of these over the years. Uh, this may have been another incident uh, that perhaps uh, we, we, we were able to not get scathed by. But Putin, being a master chess player, thinking six moves ahead, he leveraged this demise to wrest control of the oil and gas energy companies from the oligarchs and to rebuild Russia's military and their economy and propel us into what today is actually, in many uh, cases, a far worse Cold War than what we uh, experienced during the uh, 80s and 90s. Yeah, let's talk about that a little bit, because it's, uh, you know, for those of us who are old enough, we remember when the Berlin Wall fell. And there was this whole uh, belief that now we can all be friends. Russia was now going to be an emerging democracy. We were going to help them learn how to embrace our values. And that that honeymoon did not last very long. No, it certainly didn't. We think that the Cold War died. (laughs) It just took a a vacation, if you will, uh, for about a decade. And then Putin re-energized it. Uh, essentially propelled Russia back to the forefront. And now today they are creating some nightmares. They have new weapons. Uh, I wrote about one not only in this book, but in another novel. Uh, it's called Status 6. That's the name of this torpedo. It's 10 times bigger than anything ever built. It's got a 100 megaton nuclear warhead and a miniature nuclear reactor in it. They could fire it from all the way across the ocean takes about three days to get to where it needs to go, and it could take out all of San Diego or all of New York. Wow. As the Russians are developing these kinds of weapon systems, what are we doing? Are are we developing equally capable systems or defensive systems to counter such threats? We do have some, and of course a lot of that is classified. And I did get the opportunity to visit the advanced research labs in Pennsylvania and met with Chuck Brickle at that time, who was the director. He's a former submarine captain. And he was showing me some of the advanced uh, capabilities that they have, some I can't talk about. But we have advanced rocket torpedoes. I mentioned the Star Trek uh, control room. Some of the things they're building are way beyond that with holographic systems, and they're looking at how to create super cavitation for submarines. Now, this was the technology used in that Schwal torpedo that I mentioned. It's like a force field around the front of the torpedo that allows it to go that fast. And that's been reverse engineered now by China as well as Iran and other countries. And China has reverse engineered it and created submarines that use it that can go very, very fast. We're working on that perhaps uh, further along than most know. But these are the kinds of advanced weapon systems. DARPA has some new systems. Uh, they call them the active robots. And they're like little miniature robots that can autonomously um, look for submarines and uh, actually trail them for many days using advanced AI technology. 
We have uh, a lot of things to be concerned with, obviously, and and one of the things that we're noticing as we deal with the uh, realities of a pandemic that originated in China, and then we have supply lines from China being compromised because of what's going on. We don't have the materials and goods we need here in the United States to deal with uh, a health threat right now, let alone a military threat. It's starting to wake us up to the fact that we have to be a little bit more careful about who we let uh, manufacture our goods. Uh, do you see something changing after after this pandemic uh, subsides uh, here? Do we wake up and do we decide, okay, it's time to start bringing some of this manufacturing home? We need it for not just convenience, but we need it for national security? Well, there's no question about it. I mentioned the importance of sea routes previously. And if we look at what these sea routes are, there's only about a half a dozen. And any of those choke points could get threatened. Iran could threaten the Strait of Hormuz. China, of course, the South China Sea. And then I mentioned the Northern Sea Route, which is opening. What's happening there is we perhaps maybe had a dozen ships traversing that route oh, 10, 12 years ago. Now there's thousands upon thousands. It cuts 40% off the time and cost. Oh, wow. To to route those goods. And so, again, sea routes are critical. And if we are dependent upon other countries and we are dependent upon these sea routes and they do become compromised, then, yes, we could have serious supply problems here in the U.S., not only for the goods that we buy, but for the things that we manufacture. It could be a very big hit on our economy. And you and you're very clear about the fact that Putin and his Russia recognizes the importance of the Arctic, right? No question about it. Uh, they have been very active. While he was invading Ukraine, he locked up a huge area in the Arctic called the Sea of Okost. It's basically they call it the peanut hole. It has trillion tons of oil and gas. And they were also very close to getting the Lomonosov Ridge, which runs from Russia all the way up to the North Pole. Again, another trillion tons of oil and gas, as well as quite a, a few areas that could be good for fisheries, et cetera, so for food supplies. But yet that whole route is becoming quite important, and they are, if you will, the dirty cops that patrol that whole thing. They can start charging for those routes and deciding who can go and who can't. Uh, we have again, almost no say about what happens along that route. Is it because they were there first with a real significant presence? Yes, and they took it seriously. Yeah. So they built about a half a dozen bases, fortified them, and then Arctic hardened their warships and have built submarines to specifically patrol that area. And again, we've got almost nothing. We have one medium-duty Coast Guard cutter. <laughs> That's about Jeez. it. Uh, for that entire area, so we're we're seriously undermanned. What, why are why are we ignoring this? It seems to be rather obvious that it's important. It is, and for some reason, we just not uh, we haven't taken that um, as uh, a priority. And so, unfortunately, we focused on some other things, and now uh, a lot of not only military, but political leaders are starting to become quite concerned that we've let it go. There were 158 nations that were part of the, it's called the UNCLAUSE, it's basically the Law of the Sea uh, Treaty, and, and we're not one of them. We really don't even have a seat at that table. We just have not seen the Arctic as important. 
Whereas Putin, again, being the master chess player, has seen way, way beyond what we have. It's interesting because from what I understand, the uh, economy of Russia is about the equivalent of the economy of Texas. I've heard that comparison. Is that a true comparison? Not far off. But again, Putin sees his GDP and the protection of his people as most important. Often we think of him as a bully, maybe more like a Hitler. And that's not the case, at least not from what he has shown. He is very protective of his country. He even uses phrases where he says they are his family. And he's like a bulldog. You poke him with a stick and he's going to attack. Mm. So he will make moves to ensure that the economy of his country is protected, even if it is only the size of Texas. Um, and oil and gas is a huge part of that. It's huge. They supply a third of the natural gas to Europe. And guess what? Four of the pipes for that natural gas go through Ukraine. Right. We've just recently um, been, in some ways, benefiting from, but if you listen to the economists and the financial news channels, uh, it's actually been hurting our economy, a bit of, a, of an oil price war. And uh, it's Saudi Arabia versus Russia. And my thought was, man, I mean, if you wanted to cripple the economy of Russia, this is exactly how, how you could do it, by having a price war, because their major export and probably the profit center for their entire economy is their oil trade. Yes, no question. However, again... I mentioned the gas that feeds the EU, a third of their natural gas, and that's the concern. So if we start to twist the screws too tightly in relation to oil prices and cause some harm there, Putin could come back on the EU and cause some issues there. He could hike up natural gas prices, or he could start to, to turn off the flow uh, this is one of the things that happened prior to the conflict in Ukraine. Uh, and so we, we have to be cautious about that uh, because one thing that we do on one side of the fence could cause a serious consequence on the other side. Let's talk about something we heard a tremendous amount about over the last three years, and that's the Putin and Russia connection to the Trump administration and uh, inter- interference in the U.S. presidential election. What's your take on all of that? And uh, Once I hear that, I'll have some follow-up questions. Absolutely. Well, we do know there are some tremendously smart web experts in Russia. Uh, In the commercial sector, uh, they do a lot of work for a lot of U.S. companies, and they are quite adept. And so the technical capabilities, obviously there. So why the political reasoning Well, again, it's most likely because Putin is a consummate chess player, thinking many chess moves ahead. And in his mind, it's perhaps the lesser of some other evils. He's got some agendas in the Arctic and elsewhere, and he may see that in terms of certain agendas, others who would come into office could be more of a threat to those agendas than uh, ones that he would like to see in office. And he therefore taps on the shoulders of these uh, Russian um, hacking experts, and they do their work. Does Putin have an interest in Trump being in office? 
it, it certainly appears that that's the case. And again, most likely because he sees Trump as less of a threat to his agenda or agendas for the future than perhaps other candidates, whoever they may be. And so he's looking at that as, uh, again, perhaps the lesser of uh, a couple of evils. I find I find it interesting because, um, you know, when Putin invaded Ukraine, when he took the Crimea, uh, we basically just watched. There was really nothing we could do. I mean, nothing that I, that that seemed like it was a reasonable uh, re- response to that kind of aggression. And Ukraine was at that point begging to be in NATO, was begging to be part of uh, the Western uh, economies and the Western world. And uh, they were kind of kind of got a hand in their face. And uh, we did we did nothing. I don't know that it could have gotten any easier for Putin at that point. Absolutely. And I mentioned earlier, you poke the bulldog and he will bite. And that's what happened. We were trying to get Ukraine to become a NATO country. And he saw that as a threat in two ways. One, we could wheel in nuclear launchers right at his doorstep. In his mind, that's like nuclear launchers in Cuba during the the Cuban Missile Crisis. That's one. Number two, those four pipes. He would lose control of the four pipes that feed the EU, and that could seriously undermine the economy of Russia uh, in many ways. And so when that threat happened, he moved, and he moved quite quickly. That was his real reason. And, of course, uh, to keep the military and the naval military capability in the Crimea base, uh, also planning another pipe just south of uh, Crimea, uh, that since got abandoned after the Ukraine invasion. But all of these reasons um, added up, and he did, he did see this as a threat, and he acted quite quickly to avert the threat. Going back to the book, Spies of the Deep, obviously we talked about the fact that, that uh, the curse uh, incident occurred 20 years ago. About Why is this important to us today? It actually set the tone for where we are today. I think history will see this as that stake in the ground, basically, that propelled us toward where we are today in terms of the Cold War. As I mentioned, the curse propelled Putin to power. Good chance he might not have got elected if not for that submarine. And then when it went down, because he was able to use that, that demise, if you will, and point a finger at the U.S., uh, to say maybe uh, we were involved, et cetera. And, and he side-skirted the fact that they waited to rescue the 23 survivors, very cleverly used it to wrest control from the oligarchs, and then rebuild Russia into where we are today. But a lot of the technology, as I mentioned, the Shkval torpedo, uh, that has been reverse-engineered by a lot of countries. I mentioned Iran. They have a new Hoot torpedo that has this capability, and who knows, may have nuclear warheads now. Uh, so a lot of things came from that incident, and a lot of things came from the technology they were testing on the Kursk. Uh, the saturation diving, you know, I mentioned that uh, we trained them. Uh, Halliburton trained them on saturation diving so they could do the salvage. Well, Dick Cheney, right before that happened, was the former president of Halliburton. At the time that happened, he was running for vice president of the United States. Wow. So a lot of things happened around this this Kursk incident that people don't understand has created a huge domino effect 
that has dramatically changed history. When you were uh, researching and uh, collecting information for writing this book, did you have to do any uh, investigative diving yourself? <laughs> well put. Yes, I did. Uh, actually, <laughs> it took quite a bit to uh, get some of the submariners aboard the Memphis Toledo to come forward and talk. And I want to state that none of them said anything that could compromise national security, nor did they violate any security oaths in any way. Uh, they gave me background and some information and puzzle pieces that, I, that allowed me to put things together. And I had to go digging uh, into a lot of different areas from dockyard workers uh, who worked at the Fasling Naval Base where the Toledo docks after this incident, uh, and then also a lot of um, former Russian submariners worked with the International Submarine Association out of uh, St. Petersburg, and through a Russian translator talked to a lot of folks who were involved in this, a lot of the divers. I also got to speak with the British and Norwegian divers and their supervisors involved in the rescue op because they uncovered, they saw evidence of some things that were shocking, basically, in relation to the rescue operation. As you were uncovering this information yourself, were you surprised? I, I was, yes. And even though I firsthand knew how these things could get covered up and buried, of course, the incident on the submarine that I was on was for, mm-hmm. for decades. Uh, so I wasn't shocked that it was buried or didn't come forward, but I was shocked by the information that I uncovered, especially in relation to what really happened with the Kursk, and including the, the rescue operation and how that got botched and then covered up. It was, uh, it was difficult because I had an affinity. I still have an affinity. Even though we were enemies during the Cold War, um, any submarine, regardless of the country, in my opinion, for those of us who serve, they, we look at them like brothers. Sure, yeah. Let me ask about a nightmare scenario here. We know that Russia has put a lot of effort into developing new weapon systems, sometimes seemingly cutting edge and and maybe frighteningly uh, ahead of some of the things that we've got in development. Um, And yet we know that their economy is is much smaller than ours. And yet they have a a neighbor, which is also a bit of a, uh, not a bit of, it's a totalitarian government in China. Is it a nightmare scenario if those two nations, China and Russia, decide to fully cooperate much more than they do today? Is that an unbeatable combination for us? It certainly can be. We do know that they have negotiated a number of economic deals, about a $400 billion natural gas deal. This was a number of years ago. And a lot of the development uh, that's been going on, natural gas pipes and so on, that's being built in some of the production facilities, et cetera, cooperation there. And, of course, China wants to lock up the Sea of Japan because they found a trillion tons worth of uh, uh, natural gas and oil and so forth in that area. And so if those two gang up in some way, uh, that could be extremely difficult for us. Uh, especially if they decide to do so from an economic standpoint, because that could undermine the U.S. dollar uh, if that is now no longer used for energy trades. China um, is starting to flex its muscles 
in a lot of different ways. And uh, they, too, are um, ex- excelling in military development and deployment. And are we doing are we are we in a position where we can even uh, seriously uh, prepare ourselves for what China might be capable of? They have some incredible capabilities. I mentioned the supercavitation with their submarines and some of the more advanced weapon systems. They have what they call the assassin's mace, which is terribly frightening, especially to an aircraft carrier group like the uh, Theodore Roosevelt that uh, carrier strike group 12, because this is a Mach 10 missile system they deploy, especially around the sea, uh, South China Sea. And with we have a tough time keeping up with anything that's Mach 5. Yeah. Uh, so it's going to be tough. And we've got some new things we're developing, rail guns and things of that nature, but we've, uh, we're still quite a bit behind. We're not quite there yet. So if these new weapon systems get deployed, if we do get into a conflict, uh, it's a toss-up right now. Explain to me what the Assassin's Mace is. So this system is basically... Uh, in relation to their viewpoint that if you throw enough firepower, manpower, whatever it is, at something, you'll overwhelm it. And so that's what they are looking at with this assassin's mace. It's basically a missile system that they've deployed all around, primarily the South China Sea, but in other areas that would fire a volley, quite a large volley of these missiles that can hit Mach 10. And we, we'd have a tough time keeping up with them or, or counter, countering this strike in time because, again, going that fast, you've only got a very short period of time yeah. before you even detect it, and, and then it hits your carrier group. And, of course, then you, you, talk, you add the submarine into uh, this equation, and you've got a, a, a delivery system that can be run off your coast. Yes, For absolutely, and that could be really devastating. If you get uh, a Mach 10 missile fired from a submarine, you wouldn't know about it until it already exploded. Yeah. I mean, uh, you look at the world today, and uh, in, in these threats, we've got Iran, we've got North Korea, we've got China, we've got Russia. Where should we be focusing most of our attention, or, should, or, or do we have to focus on all of it? We do have to focus on all of it, unfortunately. Again, I mentioned the sea routes, and so that's really what we need to be paying attention to. That's the number one priority. Keep those sea routes open because that can devastate our economy. And with our economy devastated, that becomes even that much more difficult to keep up with them from a military standpoint. And in today's geopolitical situation, it isn't so much that they want to destroy America, devastate us in some way. Uh, that's a no-win situ- situation. What they want to do is to have enough threat that they can control what they want to control, and we can't. So China wants to lock up these natural resources and others for uh, a number of new technologies, such as solar technologies and so on, some of the, the raw minerals for that. They want to lock up these areas. And if they have enough firepower that we can't go against without getting into some serious economic issues, uh, then they believe we'll just leave them alone and let them have their marbles, and we can't do anything about it. 
I mean, you know, the idea of uh, bottling up or, or locking up or in some way controlling sea lanes and charging a toll, to put it simply, uh, that's not just going to affect the United States because every one of those ships is coming from another country or going to another country that's also affected. I mean, it seems like the global community would get in, get a little bit more angry about that threat, and it wouldn't be just a U.S. problem. Yes, that's correct, and uh, there were... A number of uninformed, unfortunately, uh, politicians who were tapping on the shoulders of naval military uh, commanders and saying, we should do what they call a, uh, an exercise up in the Arctic, basically uh, an um, operation that would show Putin that he can't control the Arctic. You know, Take us some, war- some warships up there and show him that we're just not going to put up with this. Now, unfortunately, we just don't have any warships yeah. that can operate very well in the Arctic at all. We might have to borrow some, perhaps from Norway. <laughs> uh, well, they're not going to do that. They get a third of their natural gas from Russia, and they don't want to cause a fight with Russia that could backfire on them. So we're in a difficult situation. Uh, they can do almost anything they want up in that, that uh, Arctic route, and we can't do much about it. And it seems like all of it boils down to the fact that our major allies, the you know, the, the Europeans that are part of NATO, uh, are afraid of having their natural gas supply cut off. That seems to be the, um, the Achilles heel of the whole thing. That is a very key part of it, as well as other trade, of course. And then they're in fear that if there's a conflict that starts... Uh, that could cause a serious economic situation for them. Uh, they don't want to have to get involved in that type of a situation. They were, you know, very uh, concerned about that when the Ukraine situation uh, came up. As, as we saw, they were walking very timidly. You know, Germany was cutting deals with Russia for new uh, gas. Um, supplies, even while they were on the other side of the fence, scorning them for invading Ukraine. It's, you know, it's a very difficult situation with Europe right now. Yeah, and let's talk a little bit about a couple of these other hotspots, too, and some of the time we have left. I don't know. It's probably just because this pandemic takes up all news all of the time, and it rightfully should in most cases. Uh, but we don't hear much about North Korea right now. Are they Are they silent, or are we just not hearing about it? We're just not hearing about it. They are not silent. They have more submarines than we do. Now, they are older. However, uh, some of these older submarines, diesel submarines, can be hard to find. We lost several of them many years ago. Uh, We and the South Koreans couldn't find them. And they are now, uh, we believe, very strongly nuclear-equipped. They were able to create some nuclear material, and we filmed it being shipped to the submarine base, so pretty strong indications that they're equipping their, if not torpedoes, perhaps even ballistic missiles. Uh, this could cause a serious problem. So they haven't gone away. Uh, they're just you know, down the list currently. But, again, they're paying attention to what's going on, and they're learning. Has and they're, they're saying, hmm, okay. Uh, if uh, a tiny little virus can cause this much of an economic hit to the U.S., what can we do? Yeah. Has the rhetoric rhetoric uh, slowed down a little bit, calmed down a little bit? Well, it certainly has now. And, again, I think it's because they are biding their time. 
and uh, plotting, if you will, what their next move might be after this is over. So hopefully, if not from North Korea or Russia or China, we won't get a one-two punch. Uh, I do outline what that uh, number two punch could be in the Spies of the Deep book that could be far worse than what we're suffering through right now. Oh, and and the other hotspot, uh, Iran, they're obviously uh, very consumed by the virus. They were hit particularly hard as a country by this coronavirus. But they still remain a threat, not just to uh, us, but to the entire region, to Israel specifically. And their rhetoric doesn't seem to slow down much at all. Not at all. And they are, of course, sponsors to a number of terrorist groups, as we know. But this hoot torpedo they have is very concerning. It again, reverse engineered from that squall torpedo to maybe 300 knots and good indications that they may have enough nuclear fission material now to perhaps at least get some of these uh, equipped with nuclear warheads. So imagine if the Theodore Roosevelt or another carrier patrols that Strait of Hormuz and they take out a very silent diesel submarine equipped with these suit torpedoes, one of these things could take out a 12-mile radius in an entire strike group, if you will. Scary stuff. Um, let's talk about our allies for a second. I mean, for 50 years, maybe a little longer than that, we've had a, a, a lot of security in knowing that the NATO alliance was strong, was uh, had an advantage technologically, and uh, we felt pretty confident we could count on our NATO partners. Do we still feel confident we can count on our NATO partners? Not very much. We still have a good, strong relationship with the U.K., but even that is not as strong as it was, uh, even though we came to the rescue in World War II. Yeah. Uh, but other countries, again, uh, are backing down, backing away from their NATO commitments. And, again, concerned that they don't want to get involved in any conflicts and cause any issues, especially when it comes to economic issues or any trade issues. And the cost, of course, for having to support anything that looks like a war. Don't they see the same threats we do? I and mean, they must. I mean, Russia just took yep. over part of Ukraine. It's, that's, their, that's on their doorstep. They do, but I think a lot of them are hoping they can stay neutral, like Switzerland. <laughs> yeah, they've tried that a few times. It didn't work. It didn't work in nineteen. <laughs> right. Didn't work in nineteen fourteen. It didn't work in nineteen in the nineteen thirties. I don't understand why they think that way, but they do over and over again. Um, I want to bring up something I find kind of interesting because you wrote a book called uh, Let's see, what's the name of this one? It's me, Tarz, me, what? Tarzan, my father. That's right. Uh, and you co-wrote that with uh, Johnny Weissmuller Jr. Is that right? Yes, that's correct. Uh, my father and I, actually, when my father's alive, we co-wrote that together, and uh, Johnny Weissmiller Jr. has also passed on. But he wanted to tell the truth about his father, who started all those movies uh, back in the day uh, when there were Tarzan movies. And Johnny Weissmiller Sr. hung out with all kinds of people, um, Red Skelton and, uh, you know, um, Humphrey Bogart, and all these top movie stars, etc., all during that time, and all these stories were going to get lost, and there were a lot of misconceptions about him, and you know, he had a number of wives, and uh, one of them had an affair with Jimmy Stewart, and just, you know, all these little Hollywood secrets 
if you like good, juicy Hollywood stuff, this book has got all of it in there. It, it sounds like it does, and I find it very curious because we talk about on this program a lot of uh, metaphysical things and synchronicities come up all the time i have not heard the heard the name johnny weissmuller in ages and last night our guest i think it was i'm trying to remember exactly but his his his, he was a he's a psychic and he he was working with somebody whose mom dated johnny weissmuller so i heard the name last night and then i see it again tonight I'm, i'm just i just find it funny that it's come up in two shows back to back when i haven't heard that name in forever um but the book the book sounds fascinating too um and tell us about uh, some of your other work too i mean you've you've written several books uh, red november is another one that that i think uh looks very very interesting but if someone wanted to start with your work do you, where where do you recommend they start which book uh it depends on what you like so if you if you like more of the military or geopolitical I would recommend Red November. That's Cold War. So this is about the most daring, dangerous, decorated missions of the Cold War. And then Spies of the Deep, of course, picks up where that one leaves off after the Cold War and going forward. And for nonfiction, I also have a leadership book that uh, delves into the latest neuroscience around leadership and some really terrific leaders. In fact, a couple of former secretaries of the Navy, uh, Gordon England, the former deputy sec def, wrote the forward to the book, and some of the things they talked about are just riveting. Uh, I thought I knew about leadership until I interviewed them. A couple of novels, Status Six I mentioned is coming out later this year, and that's, I think, a a real fun one. It talks about this torpedo, but it talks about AI technology. What if AI technology, which is going to be used and is being used, to control ships and submarines, took yeah. over a Russian submarine loaded with these status six torpedoes, and then a virus made it go crazy, and oh. a virus that the U.S. created. Uh, what might happen there? So that's an area. That's an all too... It's not the coronavirus is bad. Read the eagle and the snake. Yeah, and that that uh, that computer virus in the, in the Russian submarine concept is an all too real possibility as... as artificial intelligence takes over more and more of the roles that uh, you know humans used to be able to do and used to do it with some judgment. Yes, absolutely. And that's one of the things I learned when I visited with uh, Chuck Brickle, the director at the uh, Advanced Research Labs, is that they had been looking at that. And one of the things I mentioned in the book is that AI is not quite there yet. They did some experiments and they found that it misclassifies things. When it looked at a um, a baby holding a bottle and thought it was looking at um, someone holding a baseball bat or maybe even someone holding a weapon. Oh, wow. So this is a concern because what if it misclassifies a fishing trawler for a gunboat? Right, right. And I know that I mean, it seems to me, again, this is we're in a really weird age because we're not getting our normal flow of information because everything is so consumed by the pandemic. But it seems as though some of these companies that were experimenting with uh, um, self-driving cars have kind of backed away because there's been so there were some accidents and some, you know, some uncertainties there, too. So it seems like maybe they've taken a step back from this. Yes, absolutely. And we also have this term that's called good and bad friendly or unfriendly AI, right? right. Uh, no such thing. I've talked to a lot of AI experts, and it's it's really a black box. Most AI programmers who tell you they don't really know what's going on inside an AI brain. You know, they <laughs> they give it the parameters, they give it the programming, and what really happens 
They don't know. They've had AI systems create their own languages to talk to each other, and nobody knew what they were saying to wow. each other. Wow. So it can be scary. We have to uh, watch what we're doing with AI yeah. tech. Be careful what we create. Um, back to Spies of the Deep. Uh, are you hoping this may sound some warning bells for some key people? No question about it. One of the things that I mentioned is that we wrongly think that politicians and those in power have all the power and have all the control. That's false. We, the people, still have the control. Every time a Gallup poll takes our opinion, politicians cower. But the problem is we allow the mainstream media to tell us what to think and who to vote for. We only see maybe two candidates that they spend all their time talking about, and we completely forget about others that may actually be better leaders. And we need leaders who can step up and be toe-to-toe with the likes of Putin, who can play chess, know the geopolitical landscape, know what the military is about, at least, because they're in control of it, and make the right moves against some of these very smart leaders who have some very concerning agendas is it uh, that that opens up a whole new uh topic of conversation that we don't have time for but i do want to ask a couple questions relating to what you just said is it possible in in today's media climate for someone who has rolled up their sleeves and maybe gotten their fists bloodied a little bit in their lives to develop those leadership skills can someone like that actually rise to a leadership position when you know if if somebody says a word out of place anymore they are uh, basically crucified out of existence in public life absolutely and i don't necessarily have an affinity for any candidate in particular but I'm just going to mention one because I think it's a good example of what you just said. Okay. And that was back during our last election um, when Jim Webb was running for president and Hillary Clinton was also running for president. Right. And, of course, uh, Jim Webb got, I don't know, maybe 1% or 2% of the exposure. And yet here's someone – he was a Democrat. You know, who cares? Democrat, Republican. But the, the point being – a U.S. Naval Academy graduate, very smart geopolitical, a silver star, two bronze stars, two purple hearts, a decorated veteran, right. U.S. senator, really knows his way around, very sharp, strong business acumen, and yet he didn't even get a whisper during that time. He should have at least been in contention. This is the type of leader that unfortunately just doesn't get mentioned in mainstream media. And then we complain right. about who did or did not get elected, depending upon who we love, rather than looking at, okay, <laughs> who can be a really strong leader that we should at least pay attention to? Yeah, sadly, um, we are in a situation where um, – very, very good candidates, very good people don't get the attention uh, that they deserve. So we never really even hear the message. And that's that's part of the problem with the system, I think. Absolutely. No yeah. question. So once again, let people know where they can get a hold of the books. Now, Spies is not out yet, right? It is available for pre-order today. Oh, oh today. And okay, perfect. If you, yeah, if you pre-order the book today, uh, you'll get an ebook copy of the Status 6 book for free. Uh, and you can go anywhere books are sold, 
or you can just pop up to wcraigreed.com, W-C-W-C-R-A-I-G-R-E-E-D.com, and uh, just look for Spies of the Deep, and you'll see all the information on it. Great. And you've, you've got other things in the works, I imagine, Bill. What's coming up for you? Well, we've, of course, got the Status 6 book coming up, but I'm also working on one that's really going to be interesting. It's a nonfiction book about a German soldier during World War II who survived Berlin, got captured by the U.S., became a Russian prisoner of war, and then also a French prisoner of war, and had to uh, defuse minefields, and then later got recruited by the Army and and the Air Force and became a medical doctor out of Washington and then became a doctor to the stars and to the, the uh, president's wife, uh, Jimmy Carter's wife, and on and on. I mean, the, the oh, wow. story is incredibly riveting. He's 94, uh, lives nearby, and just a wonderful man. And I just, I had to write this story. It's, it's absolutely riveting. Well, get it out, get it made into a film, because something has to dethrone Tiger King to take our attention away from that <laughs> Absolutely. nonsense. Hey, Absolutely. Bill, yeah, Bill, thank you so much for your time tonight. Fascinating topic. Very, very interesting book as well. I wish you the best with it. And uh, let's get you back on the show sometime. Absolutely. Appreciate it. Fantastic. And uh, look forward to the next time. Beyond Reality Paranormal is hosted by J.V. Johnson and produced by Orion Palmer and Slick Eddie Edwards. Like us on Facebook and subscribe to our YouTube channel. Please consider supporting the program either through your podcast platform, click on the link in the description, or on Patreon at Joha Productions. If you'd like to be a guest on Beyond Reality Paranormal or you have a recommendation for a guest, contact our producer, Slick Eddie Edwards. Eddie is spelled with a Y at slickeddieedwards at gmail.com.